0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, November the 22nd. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. A new cybersecurity strategy is being unveiled to protect businesses, governments and critical infrastructure from ransomware and attacks by state-sponsored hackers and crime gangs. The federal government's almost $600 million seven-year plan comes after millions of Australians had their personal details leaked in high-profile cyber attacks, including on Optus and Medibank. Political reporter Noor Haydar is in Canberra.
1: Well, this is a strategy which the government says will put Australia on track to be a world leader in cybersecurity by 2030. The federal government's committed an additional $600 million to implement new elements of this plan to boost Australia's cyber defenses. That covers six key areas, around $300 million will go towards Uh, better protecting small and medium-sized businesses and growing public awareness within the broader community about the threat of cybercrime. It was also foreshadowed last week that as part of this plan, businesses will be required to report ransomware incidents under a new mandatory no-fault reporting system. So that forms part of this new strategy There'll also be close to $150 million spent on strengthening critical infrastructure. As part of that, the government will be uh, reviewing Commonwealth legislation around what data businesses are required to store for extended periods of time. The plan says that many businesses have voiced concerns that they're required to store substantial data records for excessive periods of time, which can then often be considered high value targets for malicious cyber actors. Under this strategy, the government will also be investing around $129 million in building regional cyber resilience within the Pacific and Southeast Asia. So they form some of the key areas of investment under this new plan. And Nor, why does the government say that this plan is actually needed? Well, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, has described cyber security as an urgent national problem that requires action now. She says that the nation was in a cyber slumber, her words, under the former coalition government, arguing that Australia's defences were lagging and are lagging behind our trading partners and allies and that individuals and businesses have been left exposed. Over the last 12 months, Sabra, millions of Australians have had their personal data leaked in high-profile cyber attacks on uh, Optus and on Medibank Private. In the last week alone, one of Australia's largest port operators DP World was also forced to shut down its operations for several days after being victim of a cyber attack. Claire O'Neill says that on average, one cybercrime is reported every six minutes. It's costing billions of dollars to the economy. And she says there is a reason to believe that the threat will only grow into the future, pointing to the additional risks that will be posed by artificial intelligence and an increasingly challenging geopolitical environment
0: as political reporter Noor Haydar. An agreement between Israel and Hamas for the release of some of the more than 200 hostages captured last month is inching closer. Both sides are expressing hope that a deal's looming to free some of the people snatched by Hamas militants and taken to Gaza after their deadly cross-border raid into Israel, which triggered the war. The United States President Joe Biden also says an agreement is very close. Correspondent Adam Harvey is in Jerusalem. Adam, what details have emerged?
2: Well, the details that are being dropped to the Israeli media from people inside the Israeli government are that 50 hostages, women and children, will be released under this plan and that they'll be released in tranches. So some of the speculation says that that around 10 people will be released each day and that they'll be released in exchange for Palestinian women and children who are being held in Israeli detention. Now... Nobody has come out formally in Israel and uh, said that this is happening. We've got meetings with the war cabinet and the broader Israeli government going on as we speak. In fact, some of the only, uh, one of the only people who's speaking about what's going on is US President Joe Biden. He's added to the speculation.
3: We're now very close, very close. Uh, He could bring some of the assassins home very soon. But I don't want to get into the, in the details of saying that because nothing is
0: done until it's done. Adam, what kind of support is there, would you say, among the public and political spheres for this possible hostage deal?
2: Well, the focus here right across Israel is just to get people out. That's the, the constant message of the uh, of the hostage families. The first priority should always be to get the hostages out and then everything else can follow after that. There has been a little bit of dissent uh, coming from the far right. You've got um, Ben Gavir, who's the pro-settler, ultra-nationalist member of the Netanyahu government. And he says that he's opposed to this deal because he doesn't want the release of any Palestinian prisoners at all. Uh, And that fits right into his kind of anti-Arab sentiment that he's notorious for.
0: That's correspondent Adam Harvey in Jerusalem with Israel and Hamas. appearing close to a deal that could bring a pause in fighting, the United Nations says it's putting together a plan to get more aid into Gaza. Here's UN spokesman Farhan Huck.
4: What we are doing is trying to make sure that we are ready so if there is any pause in fighting, which is what we've been asking for, we we would be able to uh, deliver humanitarian aid more effectively. So we're putting in place arrangements, including through discussions with the needed authorities.
0: It's the United Nations spokesman, Farhan Haq. <music> Refugees and asylum seekers who've been held by Australia in immigration detention in Papua New Guinea could soon be homeless. About 60 men remain from a group who were moved from the Manus Island Detention Centre to Port Moresby when a PNG court found that their detention was illegal. But a program to provide them and their families with accommodation, groceries and medical care has run into trouble. PNG correspondent Tim Swanston reports.
5: Life for Egyptian refugee Faisal al-Zaini is very different to what it was eight years ago. He, his wife and two kids live in a unit in Port Moresby, a far cry from his detention on Manus Island. But his accommodation provider has told him he's likely to be evicted at the end of the week.
6: He will close every, all accommodation. I'm scared, my wife, my kids, where I will go. Where I go with my wife,
5: my kids. Like other refugees and asylum seekers, Faisal Zaini's accommodation has been funded by Australia's Home Affairs Department. But in late 2021, Australia and PNG struck an agreement that meant the department stopped paying accommodation providers, hospitals and other services directly, instead handing a lump sum and responsibility to the PNG government. A department spokesperson says it provided PNG with substantial funding to support its independent management of the residual caseload. The amount of money is secret, but it appears it's run out, with the PNG providers of accommodation, food, health and security services claiming they haven't been paid for a year. In a letter to PNG's chief migration officer, they claim contracts have been breached and say...
0: We as service providers have no other recourse than to withhold all contracted services until all outstanding payments have been resolved. All access to services provided by us will cease from November 23rd.
5: Food vouchers and payments for electricity and water bills have already stopped. Faisal Alzani's wife, Jacqueline, says the last few weeks have been a struggle.
2: It's really difficult. Like, I have two kids and... We need diapers for the kids and
5: food and everything. PNG's top migration official, Stanis Hulahau, acknowledges that providers haven't been paid all year and says he's working with the Home Affairs Department for funding and he's confident of finding a solution soon. Ian Rintoul from the Refugee Action Coalition says Australia needs to act.
7: The refugees in PNG are facing a desperate situation. Every day it gets worse. The Australian government must provide the funds needed to restore restore services and to restore those services immediately.
5: Earlier this week, PNG's Prime Minister James Marape said refugees wouldn't be thrown out on the street, but providers are adamant unless they're paid, the evictions will take place. This is Tim Swanston in Port Moresby reporting for AM.
0: When the United Nations World Heritage Committee decided not to put the Great Barrier Reef on the endangered list, one of the things the federal and Queensland governments promised was to improve water quality. Yesterday, the Albanese government added an extra $50 million to a program which is trying to stop sediments from entering the environment. But as Elizabeth Cramsey reports, experts say it won't help tackle one of the biggest causes, land clearing.
6: As a professor of marine studies at the University of Queensland, Ove Hogelberg enjoys diving on the Great Barrier Reef.
7: Going out on the reef, out of Cairns, there are certainly some places which are very, uh, still very beautiful and, and very functional from a, an ecosystem point of view. But what we are seeing is more and more coral disappearing from the reef and, 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 and less and less of those sort of vibrant colours. And of course, eventually that starts to affect things like the fish that live on the reef and the quality of the sort of diving experience and so on.
6: Poor water quality is one of the biggest threats to the reef. So yesterday, the Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plebisek announced a $50 million top up to a program that helps repair and protect gullies, creeks and riverbanks that flow into the reef.
1: We're working with natural resource management organisations, with local councils, with environmental organisations and traditional owners to make sure that we have the right projects to improve water quality.
6: It's money Professor Hogelberg welcomes.
7: What's really encouraging at the moment is we're seeing you know both sides of government taking the issue of the health of the Great Barrier Reef very seriously and of course that is not only because it's beautiful but it's also an economic engine for Queensland and, and the rest of Australia. It's interesting when you look at the the economy of the reef and it's producing something like you know it's a, 5 to 6 billion dollars worth of sort of economic activity. And when you take that number and then you compare that to how much we invest in the reef. So these contributions are good, but it's just that if you want to turn the reef around and not lose all those corals, it takes a sustained bipartisan approach.
6: But he says governments need to be in for the long haul.
7: You know, you might repair parts of a river catchment and and have tried to to avoid the problems of of sort of pollution hitting the reef. But whether you know you've invested enough will only be seen over decades. So it's a sort of, you know, you have to invest in the reef knowing that the immediate benefits won't be immediately obvious.
6: The Australian Marine Conservation Society has recently published a report card on reef protection. It tracks the Australian and Queensland government's commitments to recommendations made by UNESCO. And when it comes to improving water quality... The results weren't great. Dr Lisa Schindler is the Society's Great Barrier Reef Campaign Manager.
8: We've seen, I think there's over 500,000 hectares of trees that have been cleared in three years that have been reported since 2018. And the problem with clearing trees in these catchment areas is it increases um, erosion, which can then create more sediment washing off land and into the Great Barrier Reef waters and so the concern is that the government is putting a lot of money into addressing erosion and sediment but then also allowing trees to be cleared which is counteracting that investment.
6: But she hopes the money will help to reduce stream bank and gully erosion that are the big
8: problem areas. Well my hope is that it does go into those areas because I think when you've got limited investment, you really need to make sure that your money is going to those areas that are the biggest problem, so you can get the biggest bang for your buck.
0: As Dr Lisa Schindler from the Australian Marine Conservation Society, ending Elizabeth Cramsey's report. Indigenous leaders on a remote island in the Gulf of Carpentaria are celebrating the return of almost 200 artefacts that have been held at a museum in the United Kingdom. They include fishing spears and shell dolls. And their return has helped the community reinvigorate the traditions of making and using these objects, as Jane Barden reports.
9: The return of objects, once vital in the Anandiliakwa people's daily life, prompted great celebration on Brute Island off Arnhem Land. Community leader Nolene Lalara...
4: Today it's a very um, special um, day for us because um, our repatriation has came back from Manchester Museum
9: The Federal Government's Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies helped negotiate the return of the things collected by a British anthropologist in the 1950s and then donated to the Manchester Museum. Leonard Hill is the Institute's CEO.
3: Those items include uh, shell dolls, spears, woven armbands, baskets, an important collection for the local community. The return of these materials from Manchester Museum has been a, a long process. Uh, almost three years.
9: The artefacts are among more than 2,000 recovered from museums around the world, including stone axes returned from Israel to Victoria, boomerangs from New Zealand to Tennant Creek, and secret men's objects from the United States to Alice Springs.
3: The work around returning cultural heritage items from collections is difficult, though. All institutions are at different uh, stages in terms of decolonising archives.
9: The UK's top diplomat to Australia, British High Commissioner Vicky Trudell says she wants to see more returns.
0: For Britain today, this is part of our reconciliation journey, supporting this kind of work. It is important for Britain to have that modern, relevant relationship with the First Nations, one of recognition, one of mutual respect, one of understanding. Whatever our history, it's about what we forge together for the future.
9: For Groot Islanders, getting back examples of items that they still produce, like fishing spears and canoes, is an affirmation that colonisation hasn't ended their culture. Elder and artist Elvis Barra.
10: I saw my dad's stuff came back to Groot Island and I'm really happy to see everything and the boat he drove on the back.
9: It's also reinvigorating cultural traditions. The negotiations to bring back 70 ochre-painted shell dolls, which children use to learn their community kinship responsibilities, has prompted artists to start making them again. Root Island elder Edith Mamarika. I remember playing with these these dolls. They, we used to do that a long time ago. We used to get a little bit of material, like
4: this, and she's stressed.
9: The Institute's return program, costing $2.5 million a year, has federal funding until June. Leonard Hill hopes it will get more.
3: With the amount of material that is held overseas, we estimated there was something like 115,000 cultural heritage items held in collections around the world. It's decades of work of returning material back to community.
0: That's Leonard Hill from the Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies speaking with Jane Barton. Earlier today, the Socceroos defeated Palestine 1-0 in a FIFA World Cup qualifying match in Kuwait. The match should have been a home game for the Palestinian team, but the Israel-Gaza war meant a late change. It's been one of the many unexpected challenges for Football Australia Chairman Chris Niku, who will stand down at today's annual general meeting in Sydney. Tracy Holmes reports.
4: After nine years on the board of Football Australia, five of them as chair, Chris Niku has faced some unusual challenges.
10: I've been able to confirm the current coach of the Socceroos, Graham Arnold, broke a virus isolation order yesterday,
4: and overseen great successes.
5: The host country of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, which will be Australia. Yeah!
10: But nobody running a sport expects to have to deal with war. When you're playing international sport, what is normal one day is a totally foreign environment the next day. And the situation with Palestine and Israel at the moment, the Gaza is, you know, really gut-wrenching for both communities. And um, a lot of work goes in behind the scenes with DFAT and our security people.
4: Within weeks of being elected chair in 2018, NICU had to deal with the fallout from the sacking of Matilda's coach Alan Stajic. Then, successfully bidding for the FIFA Women's World Cup that led to record television ratings
10: changed the narrative at home and the sporting landscape beyond. To some other countries, putting on a tournament by itself wasn't critical to them. But what were we going to leave as a legacy piece for the Pacific Islanders and you know, generally for women was a much more important part of you know, what we were lobbying about.
4: Players are now partners in the game, standing up for workers' rights in Qatar, donating part of their match fees to aid in Gaza and negotiating equal pay.
10: I grew up in an era where people would say, you don't mix sport. With politics, I think that's not the area that we live in now and Socceroos and Matildas with the PFA's support have a a conscience about these world issues.
4: While he's stepping down as Chair of Football Australia, Niku will serve one more term on the board of the Asian Football Confederation, where the oil-rich and investment-hungry Saudi Arabia is causing ripples in a sporting world
10: the West is used to dominating. What's worked best in my experience is not to berate or lecture other cultures but be respectful of their view, but explain why a particular issue is important.
4: And there's one agenda item that he's going to have to leave to his replacement, who
10: will be elected at today's AGM. Getting a home of the Socceroos is, is a missing part of the jigsaw. That certainly needs to be plugged in sooner rather than later from my perspective.
0: Outgoing Football Australia Chair Chris Nicku ending that report from Tracey Holmes. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
4: I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Australia is now in dispute with China over a maritime altercation on the high seas, which saw two Australian divers injured. Today, foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgets on how the incident unfolded and how China's response threatens to open a new rift. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.